what is, in your estimation, the most popular verse in all the Bible? Contemplate that just for a moment. The most popular verse in all the Bible. Perhaps John 3.16 comes to mind. Perhaps uh, Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Maybe 1 Peter 5.7, cast all of your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Maybe Romans 8.28, he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. There are several of these verses that are beloved for good reason. Some of the most popular verses in all the Bible. If I were to ask you, what is the most important verse in all the Bible? I wonder what might come to mind. Maybe some of these same verses, maybe John 3, 16, certainly in the minds of many, that would be the case. Some would say Genesis 12, 1, where God raises up one in Abraham who would prove to be a blessing to all people, all nations, all people groups. Interesting questions. Think about the most popular verse of Scripture. Think about maybe the most important verse of Scripture. I, I, I have a thought certainly on what's most important, by no means a definitive thought, but one that I think is true, the most important verse in all the Bible is the first verse in all the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'll tell you why I think this is the most important verse in all of the Bible. It's because if you accept this truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything else falls into its rightful place. Everything else makes sense. Everything else, not only in the scripture, but in human history becomes possible if in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In my view, there really is not much of a debate <laughs> about what is the most important verse in all of the Bible. It is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, one of the reasons I hold this to be true is the fact that this verse of Scripture is the most attacked verse in all the Bible. I can't think of another verse of Scripture that has brought more controversy or more animosity. A verse that stirred more emotion in our society than Genesis 1-1. Because there are many today who would passionately argue that God did not create the heavens and the earth. We see this carried through our society, our culture. There are so many today who work vehemently to oppose a worldview that begins with a God that created the universe. This one verse of scripture has become the, the focus point for many in terms of attacking God and attacking his authoritative word, and attacking a framework or a worldview that has God as its center. Christopher Hitchin, renowned atheist said, the creation story is ridiculous garbage and has given us a completely false picture of our origin as a species and the origins of the cosmos. 
Renowned British biologist Richard Dawkins said, religious fanatics want people to, listen to this, switch off their own minds, ignore the evidence, and blindly follow a holy book based upon private revelation. Actually, with all due respect to Mr. Dawkins, I submit to you as a Christ follower, one who is educated and informed, who has thought through these things very practically and realistically, that there are numerous problems with his statement that Christian fanatics want to switch off their own minds, ignore the evidence and blindly follow a holy book. Here's what I would say to Richard Dawkins. Number one, Christ followers are not asking anyone to turn off their minds. Secondly, Christians are not asking anyone to have a blind faith. And third, Christians are not asking anyone to ignore the evidence. We welcome meaningful debate. We welcome evaluating the evidence. We welcome a discussion around faith because I submit to you this morning that every single person on planet earth who has formulated a worldview that takes the origins of the cosmos into account is operating by some measure of faith. The question is by how much faith are they operating? And so let's not turn off our minds. Let's not turn away from the evidence. No, Christians for years have welcomed debate, welcomed dialogue. We have welcomed examining, examining the evidence. The problem is in many public arenas, we are not allowed to do that. <laughs> and so since we're at church today, I thought we might talk about some of that evidence today. <laughs> We don't wanna turn off our minds. We don't wanna resist the evidence. No, let's, let's, let's have a meaningful conversation. And let's start with what the evidence suggests and how some of these world-renowned scientists and biologists approach the cosmos with the evidence that we all share. Let me go back to Richard Dawkins, who has mocked Christians and accused us of turning off our minds and not following the evidence. Here's Richard Dawkins view of the origins of the cosmos. Quote, it could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved to a very, very high level of technology and designated a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. In other words, he's saying, it's possible, very possible, that somewhere in the universe on another planet in another galaxy far, far away, there were alien life forms that rose to such intelligence that they were able to create life. They seeded it here on this planet, meaning that our origins are tied to aliens. And looking at some of you today, I'm open to this. I think, <laughs> I think it is a reasonable explanation. No, he... No, I'm just kidding. Here's what he says. Now, this possibility is an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that. If you look at the details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. 
Richard Dawkins, the renowned British biologist, open to explaining the complexity of human life on planet Earth through alien intervention. This is not something that's unique to secular scientists. Back in 1973, Francis Clark and the chemist Leslie Orgel proposed their theory of, quote, directed panspermia, which held that life may have been seeded by beings from another planet. Microorganisms dropped into the primitive ocean before multiplying would have traveled here in an unmanned spaceship that was sent to Earth by a higher civilization, which of course had evolved billions of years ago. Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't buy into the alien theory or directed panspermia. He believes we are here as a result of stardust. He says, quote, what we do know and what we can assert without further hesitation is that the universe had a beginning. Well, we can all agree on that. You don't have to have a PhD to agree that the universe had a beginning. So we're so far so good. He says the universe continues to evolve. And yes, every one of our body's atoms is traceable to the Big Bang and to the thermonuclear furnaces within high mass stars that exploded more than 5 billion years ago. We are stardust brought to life, then empowered by the universe to figure itself out. And we have only just begun. Bill Nye, several years ago, when pressed on how we explain human consciousness, the fact that human beings have a higher level of consciousness than any other life form on planet Earth, said, we don't know. In fact, he said, this is something we hope that future scientists will discover how human beings have a higher level of consciousness than other life forms on the planet. And so some of the brightest scientific minds in the world today, some of the brightest minds throughout our history have evaluated the evidence, the evidence that supposedly Christians are blind to and concluded that there was a beginning to the universe and that that beginning was an explosion that resulted in stardust formulating whereby you have inorganic and organic matter in the simplest form somehow multiplying itself over billions of years to the complexity of the order that we have today. Or that a higher life form evolved millions or billions of years ago and seeded life on earth. And thus we are here as a result of alien intervention. The bottom line is the brightest scientific biological minds in the world today don't know. These are their best hypotheses. There is literally no explanation for human consciousness and why human beings have the level of consciousness that we do. There, there is no explanation for the complexity that exists in the human body. There is no meaningful explanation for the order and the balance in our universe. There is no meaningful explanation other than chance that the earth hangs in perfect orbit around the sun to sustain life. 
so that if it were just slightly closer to the sun or slightly farther away, it would be untenable. There is no explanation, for example, for the complexity of the human eye. Even Darwin himself acknowledged the impossibility of natural selection to bring about the type of complexity that's seen in the human body and specifically in the human eye. Here's a direct quote from Darwin. Quote, that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree, end quote. Dr. Doug Borchman, University of Louisville research professor with a PhD in chemistry and a former atheist said this, quote, the cornea, lens, retina, nerves, connections are ridiculously complex in the human eye. There is so much to know. For an eye to be able to see, all the basic components must be present at the same time and work together perfectly. For instance, if we look at just the lens and imagine a fish that didn't have a lens in its eye, for the lens to be formed somehow in that fish by time and chance, the lens would have had to be perfectly formed and clear when it initially appeared in the eye. Otherwise, the lens would block vision and the survival of the fish would be seriously compromised. He's saying all these things have to happen together. He continues, to be clear, all the following must occur. The lens must not have a blood supply or intracellular organelles, the macromolecular structure of the cells and molecular structure of the biomolecules must, must be ordered as in being clear as crystal. I sound so smart saying all these words. The intercellular space must be extremely small and the biomolecules in the lens must have the correct index of refraction. No series of mutations could cause any or all of these changes in a tissue simultaneously. What he is saying is that the evidence supports a view that the complexity of the eye is something that was brought together instantaneously, not over time. He concludes this, science is not a stumbling block to belief in a creator, rather it tells us there must be something else. So let's look at the evidence. Let's have a meaningful conversation about what we see in the world today. And when we accumulate the evidence and we look at the world in which we live, we see its complexity. We see uniqueness in human beings. We see in the world today what we may refer to as microevolution, where you see variation among certain kinds of animals, but not macroevolution, where you see a frog becoming a horse. Let's look at what we see in the world today. And when you evaluate the evidence and you look at the order, you look at the balance, you look at the harmony of the universe, you look at the complexity, you look at something like human consciousness, here is the, I believe, meaningful conclusion at which you arrive that it takes a step of faith to be a Christian, but it takes a leap of faith to be an atheist. Everyone is operating with some measure of faith. 
And what is so overlooked among secular scientific communities is that it takes more faith to believe that we are here as a result of alien seeding than it does to believe that we are here through the influence and creative power of God who made all things. It takes more faith to look at the cosmos and come to the conclusion that we were stardust that somehow evolved from simplicity into massive complexity. And so we're not turning off our brains. We're not ignoring the evidence. We're not elevating some type of secret revelation. We are looking at human history. We are looking at the world in which we live. And as Christ followers under a biblical worldview, we are looking at the evidence and we are seeing that it is indeed consistent with the revealed word of God. We see that there is in Genesis 1-1 the best explanation for the origins of the cosmos. The most reasonable conclusion to which one could arrive as it pertains to the origin of the universe in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's the reasonable explanation. That's why we have the complexity that we have. That's why we have the order, the balance, the harmony. That's why we have human consciousness. We have all of these things because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm very excited over the next few weeks to walk through the first few chapters of the book of Genesis with you and discover a biblical worldview, a God-centered worldview, one that actually makes sense of where we are, who we are, and how we can live life to the fullest. We start, of course, with this very first verse. I believe the most important verse in all the Bible that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Let's break it down briefly. First of all, we see here when you look at the original language, the Old Testament for the most part is given to us in Hebrew. There are some sections in Daniel and Ezra that are Aramaic, but most of the Hebrew Bible is, um, is given to us. Uh, through the Jews' natural language of Hebrew, okay? And so what we see in Genesis 1-1 is a word for God, Elohim, that is plural. This reflects the Trinity, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, we see throughout Scripture that all three members of the Trinity are involved in creation. God the Father is the master planner. Christ is the one who executes the plan, and the Spirit is there. We'll see the Spirit in a moment hovering over the deep waters. All three members of the Trinity are involved. And so it's interesting in the Old Testament, when you look at the Hebrew language, that the word for God, the word most commonly used for God, Elohim, is a plural word. That's not accidental. God is one God in three persons, one in three, three in one. And as evidence of this, we see that in the beginning when God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth, the word created there is a very, very special word in the original language. It is the word barak. And the word barak here in Genesis 1-1 is singular because... We serve one God, 
one God in three persons. So Elohim is plural, but Barak is singular. So in the beginning, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three and one, one and three, one God, the one true and living God, he created Barak, the heavens and the earth. Now that word Barak is an amazing word because it is only used in the Old Testament of God's creative power. It is only used with God as its subject. There are many other words that are used for making or creating or doing in the Old Testament. For example, the word asa, that means to do or to make. Man makes a lot of things. Man does a lot of things, but only God barracks. Only God creates in the way that Genesis 1-1 is referring to. Let me give you an example. As a parent, I love to asa Legos. <laughs> Over the years with my children, I've asad built a lot of stuff, right? Human beings are really good at asaing. <laughs> we make a lot of things. That's very, very different than barracking the Legos. So you can make something with the Legos, but you can't make the Legos appear out of nowhere. That's what God did when he created the heavens and the earth. And that's why in the Old Testament, the word barak is only used with God as a subject. You see, this creative power of God speaks to his sovereignty. It speaks to his power. It speaks to the fact that our God can create out of nothing what exists. You see, you and I can make things with the raw materials that God has given to us. But only God and only God can give those materials to us. And he does so out of nothing. So just in this very first verse, this opening verse of the Bible, really this opening line kind of detailing for us human history and world history, right? We learn that God created the heavens and the earth, Barak. He created out of nothing, powerfully, miraculously, all that exists. And as we will see, he put it into order. It's also important to note as we continue here that God created the world with the parameters that we still abide by today. In other words, he created the world to function within what we know is 24-hour days. That's how he positioned the earth on its axis. That's why he positioned the universe, the, the solar systems, right? The way that he did. We, 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 we go around the sun, right? We tilt on an axis. We have seasons. We have days. And this is seen in the very beginning. Let's look at verses 2 to 5. You see, in the beginning, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening passed, and the morning came, marking the first day. We're going to see here in a moment what God did on each day. And much has been made of this over the years. Some have said, well, day could be an age. It could be a long period of time. Some have said, well, there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And these are two different creation accounts. Let me just say this very simply. You have to work really, really, really hard to insert a gap in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. 
Moses, who's the author of Genesis, is outlining for us what it looks like specifically when God, Barak, made the heavens and the earth. And here's the first thing he did. He separated light and darkness. He did so. He saw that it was good. He, he, he separated. He established here what we know as, as day and night. And when the evening passed and the morning came, it marked the first day. Now, the Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M, and that word in the Old Testament is used in a number of contexts. It can refer to a long period of time. It can refer to a 24-hour day. We do the same thing in English, by the way. How many of you have said to your children, well, back in my day, <laughs> right? And you don't mean a little 24-hour period of time. You mean a broader scope of time when music was good and fashion was really, really good. <laughs> when we had phone cords and Walkmans and stuff like that back in my day. Well, listen, the question is, how do we know what Moses is referring to here when he says that there was morning and evening the first day? Well, there are a couple of contextual markers. Context is king. That's what tells us how words are used and what their meanings are. And hear me on this very clearly. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, when, when, when the word day appears with evening or morning, or when it's modified by a number, it always means a 24-hour day. Always, 100% of the time. Let me give you an example. Exodus 20, 11. Remember when, when Moses is giving the Ten Commandments to Israel and he lays out the command for the Sabbath. For in, look at this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens. You have the word day now here in the plural form modified by a number. For in six days, we read that as 24-hour days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. What is Moses saying here? That the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Not ages, not long periods of time. Days. You see... Genesis 1-1 makes it clear that God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 is given to us, by the way, not to um, resolve some type of fickle debate. It's given to us to reinforce that we are here by God's power and providence. In the beginning, God created Barak, the heavens and the earth. But then verses 2 and following lay out for us God's creative process. How over the course of six literal 24-hour days... That's what the word means. That's how it's used here, that he put everything together. See, there's, I believe, not any confusion here. Now, some have brought confusion to this because they look at things like the fossil record or they look at issues like um, uh, dinosaurs and how we explain uh, the fossil record for dinosaurs. And they look at things like fossil records and they, 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 they look at some scientific hypotheses and they say, well, there's no way that the earth could only be some form of thousands of years old. It has to be millions of years or more. And therefore, day doesn't mean day. Day means age. Day means a long period of time. Or perhaps even there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And there was an original creation, then a recreation. But listen to me. Here's what all of those views fail to take into account. And this is really, really, really important. These views fail to take into account the fact that you cannot have death and suffering before the fall. And if the world is millions of years old and there was a fossil record 
prior to sin entering the world, you have a, a huge difficulty, not only just with the text of Genesis 1-1, but you have a huge difficulty theologically explaining how we can have a fossil record where, of course, things have died prior to sin entering the world because, as we will see, everything that God made was good. And maybe if you've never examined the fossil record, you're unaware of this, but let me, let me show you a picture of a fossil that actually sold at auction a number of years ago of a fish eating another fish, and uh, that guy took on a little bit more than he could chew. And he died, and this fossil is preserved. And what we find is a fossil record of a fish eating another fish. And if the earth is millions of years old, and if Genesis 1 is talking about ages and there are gaps and long periods and ages in between God's creative power in terms of days, the problem with that is we have to somehow explain how you can have death and suffering before the fall in a world that God made good. And so let, let me be clear. This is not a first-tier issue. This is not an issue where if you, you know, interact with someone who disagrees, they're not a Christ follower or whatever. Listen, there are Christ followers all around the world who are just wrong on stuff like this. That's okay. Feel free to tell them. You're just wrong. Okay? No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. We just came through Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't want anybody texting their families. No, listen, there's room for disagreement here. All right? There's room for disagreement. But I'm presenting to you what I believe to be true of the text of looking at like the Hebrew word yom and how it's used in scripture. It's always used when it has a modifying number or description of evening and morning as a 24 hour day. My, my, my statement here simply is this, it, it's not gonna mean one thing, the rest of the Old Testament and something different altogether in Genesis one. And the reason I believe that God created the heavens and the earth within the parameters that we still know of today is because not only is that reinforced in places like Exodus 20, but it also follows the pattern of what we see in Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, that prior to the fall, everything God made was good and operated within perfect harmony. There was not death. There was not suffering. There were not animals eating other animals. We, we find that there was a world that was good as God designed it. And so we see that in the, in, the, in the first day. We also see it in all of the subsequent days. So let me, let me work through this quickly here, these remaining days, and then I'll, I have a few takeaways for you. Okay, so let, let, let's continue and we'll pick it up in verse six. So then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And, and that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens, and God called the space sky, and evening passed, and morning came, and marking the second day. Again, day, second day. And then God said that the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear, and that is what happened. And God called the dry ground land, and the water seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, but not kale. Kale, as we will see later, is a result of the fall. <laughs> All right? I just want to be clear on that, okay? There are no Brussels sprouts yet, no kale. All right? In fact, there's no vegetation at all to eat. It's all just to look at and be pretty. Okay, no, no green beans. No, I'm kidding. All right, here we go. 
So God made the land with sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. And these seeds uh, will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. And the land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit and their seeds produce plants and trees of the same kind. Notice that's very, very important, of the same kind. You don't have one evolving into another, no. An orange tree, guess what? Is always gonna be an orange tree, okay? And, and that's what that means. And God saw that it was good and evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. And then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be signs to mark the seasons, days and years. And let these lights in the sky shine down on earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Evening passed, morning came, marking the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. And so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of, this is very important, the same kind. Of course, we see variation among kinds. Evolution, if you will, at a micro level among kinds. But we never see it and have never proven to see it among different kinds. Where again, a certain type of bird later becomes an alligator. <laughs> okay, you don't see that. Everything's working within its own kind. Actually, it's amazing. If you look at the evidence, the scripture speaks to that, right? And, um, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came marking the fifth day. I also feel like when I read this living in Florida, there should be a word about squirrels. Anybody with me on that? <laughs> a word about, but they, they were they're, they're, they're in there somewhere. All right, here we go. Verse 24, and then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, um, each producing offspring of the same kind. Again, of the same kind, right? Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground and wild animals, and that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Everything God made was good. A demonstration of his power, a demonstration of his wisdom, a demonstration of his providence. Here's what we learned through human history. God has made what he made so that we behold his glory and find him to be the maker of all things. And, and so again, Genesis 1 is given to us here not to, not, 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 not to definitively solve every type of debate or dialogue. And even among good, solid Christ followers, there can be wiggle room here and how some of these things are interpreted. Genesis 1 is given to us, so listen to me very carefully. We don't miss God. And we actually evaluate the evidence and think with our minds and look at the world around us, evaluate things like human consciousness and say, yes, there's a reason that the world has order and complexity and that humans a higher level of consciousness because there is an intelligent designer who has made his glory known. To me, that's a small step of faith not a huge leap. 
It's a huge leap to say we're here because of random chance. We're here as a result of stardust residue. We're here because of alien intervention. We're here because of some cataclysmic event that no one can truly articulate. And thus, after billions of years, somehow that which is simple has become radically and inexplicably complex. No, that's a leap of faith. And so then what does it mean that we're created? What does it mean that the world's been created? What does it mean here? What, what is the purpose ultimately then of Genesis 1, Moses laying this out, just revealing here God's creative activity in the days, again, I believe the 24-hour days, just as we have today, the normal course of days that we have. What does all of this mean? Let me give you just two takeaways that I hope encourage you. As we kick off this series, I think this is profound. Again, I think Genesis 1 1 is the most important book, or excuse me, the most important verse in the Bible, perhaps in the most important book of the Bible. He, listen, just, just take a note of this. We can trust God's plans and promises because they're rooted in his creative power. Let me tell you what this means for you today, here in 2023 now, all right? Listen, when you look at the creative activity of God, when you contemplate afresh and new the fact that we're not here by accident, that God created the world, he created us, here's what this means. You can trust him. You can trust his plans. You can trust his providence. You can trust his promises because all of them are rooted in his Barak, his creative power, a power that only he possesses. You see, the fact that God created all things out of nothing gives us every reason to trust him in every season and circumstance. That's why as you're reading through the Psalms, in particular the Psalms of David, what you find with King David is that in the moments when he's discouraged, the moments he's frustrated, the moments he's overwhelmed, the moments he's angry, the moments that, that, that he's just weary because of the enemies around him, he appeals time and time and time again to the creative power of God. Look it up. Read through some of the Psalms this week and you'll be amazed at the number of references to God's creative power. Why? Because the psalmist understand that, that, the, that the God who created Barak, the world out of nothing, can and will sustain his children every season and circumstance. Because he's in control of all things. He made all things. And there is no person or there is no circumstance greater than his power. And so that means wherever you are today in life, whatever your family's going through, your kids, your grandchildren, your work, career, marriage, here's what this means. There is a God who loves you, a God who created you, a God who has a plan and a purpose for you, and a God who is 100% reliable for you. You can trust him. You see, this is the encouragement we have from Genesis 1.1. We're, we're, we're here as a result of the providential power of a God who made us in his image and who governs the universe even today. Listen to me. You can trust him. You see, our God who created water is more than able to part the water that he made in order for Moses and the children of Israel to pass through on dry ground. That's why I'm telling you, Genesis 1-1 is the most important verse in all the Bible. If you accept Genesis 1-1 through evidence and through special revelation, what you find is that everything else makes sense. 
The God who made water can part water, right? The God who created fire is more than able to protect the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace from the fire that he created. The God who created the lion is more than able to close the mouth of the lion that he made in order to protect his servant Daniel. Our God who created the donkey is more than able to speak to Balaam through the donkey that he himself made. Our God who is the creator, giver, and sustainer of life is more than able, hallelujah, to overcome death through the resurrection of his son because he is the author of life. (laughs) Right? He barack everything into existence. And you can trust him. He has done all that he's needed to do to prove to you that in every season and circumstance, you can trust him. Secondly, make a note of this. You can know for sure that your life and our lives have meaning and purpose. Maybe someone needs to hear this today. You are not an accident or an unintentional consequence. Your life has meaning and purpose created, barach, by a God who loves you. And let me, let me remind all of us of this, especially the beginning of this year that we will only discover our greatest purpose and fulfillment when we realize that we are not the point of the universe God is. And we live in a world that tells us if you can elevate yourself in your mind and the minds of others to become the center of your universe, there you will find fulfillment. And there are many people who have done that and none of them have found that fulfillment. Do you know why? Because the only true fulfillment to be found is a fulfillment that submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God and the fact that God made this world to bring glory to himself. And listen to me carefully. If you this year will commit to live your life not for your glory but for God's glory, it will change your life profoundly for the better. You see, you're not an accident You're not an unintentional consequence. God created you in his image. He loves you. He has a plan for you. And he is the point of the universe. And he is the point to the story of your life. And if you will build your life not around you, I know this sounds really strange. Don't build your life around you. If you will build it around God, there you will find true meaning and true fulfillment. If you'll order your career, your finances, your family, your influence around God, there you will find what it truly means to live. Because he's the point. He's the creator. He's the one who barach all things into existence. That's why Paul says in Acts 17, I love this, talking about God's creative power. He says his purpose in creating all things, in creating you and me, And eventually, we'll see this in a few weeks, scattering us all around the world that he made. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. You know what God's purpose was in creating me and you and sending us all over the world that we might know him. 
You say, well, how can I know this God who is a creator, the God who barach all things? How can I know this God? I'll tell you how you come to know this God. Number one, with humility. You receive this God into your life through humility, by confessing your sin and believing, not blindly, not foolishly, but appropriately, logically, right? Through faith, right? Reasonable faith, not blind faith. Like you, you humble yourself, you confess your sin, your need for this God, and then you, you state your faith, your belief that yes, Jesus came into the world and he conquered death for us so that we can live forever with him. And, and, and here's what the scripture says, if you believe in your heart that God raised this Jesus from the dead, right? and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, God will save you, he will welcome you into his family and, and you will discover there what it means to truly live. And you can know the God of the universe through this means because that's what we just celebrated at Christmas, that this God, this amazing providential sovereign God who created the world also created us to know him, to find him. And, and, and he even sent his son into the world so that we would know specifically where to meet him how to welcome him into our lives. And today, all you need to do is to welcome this God into your life through repentance and faith, a humility that confesses, yes, he is the point, not me. And if you've never trusted Jesus for your salvation, you've never welcomed this God into your life, today's how you need to start the year. With this confession of faith, asking him to save you. And if you're a Christ follower already, hey, can we not agree Christ followers, can we not agree that this God is worth living for? That this God is what the world is all about, right? This is why we do what we do. Because this God has done all that is required for us to know him and to relate to him forever. And he loves you so very much that he made a way for you and me, even though we don't deserve it. So that David the great King David who appealed to the power of God in so many of his Psalms, so many of his circumstances, when he messed up really, really bad. Remember Bathsheba? When he messed up really, really, really bad, God came to him through his servant, urged him to repentance, and David repented because he loved the Lord. And in that prayer of repentance, can I just, can I just show you what David said? Psalm 51.10, here's what David said. God, would you create in me a clean heart. And when David said, God, would you create in me a clean heart? You know what word he used? Barah. Oh man, that's huge. David said, God, I need you. I need you to create in me a clean heart. In other words, God, I need you to do what only you can do. And that's our prayer today. That we'd be so overwhelmed by the creative power of God, the goodness of God, that we would come to him and simply pray in humble obedience, God, would you create, God, would you barach in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence. And renew in us the joy of our salvation. That was David's prayer.